Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Matthew Jordan, and I'm delighted to be joined by David Kaiser, who is a truly singular figure in the academic world. Dave is both a professor of physics and its history, where his focus is on cosmology, quantum theory, and the institutions and large-scale cultural forces that make those theories possible, in particular in the United States since the Cold War. Today, he is here to talk about his new book, Well, Doc, You're In?, an edited volume about the life and work of the scientist and iconoclast Freeman Dyson. It is great to talk to you again, Dave. Matthew, thanks so much for having me. I'm really delighted. So just to get started, who is Freeman Dyson and what is he known for in the world of science? Dyson was really just a remarkable individual. Um, He was uh, principally a mathematical physicist. Um, He lived a very long life. He passed away at the age of 96. So he lived um, uh, right up until the very, very end of February 2020. Uh, So he had a very colorful career starting in mathematics and physics, and then as, as the book explores, really fanning out to an extraordinary degree into areas of um, applied science, technology, and engineering uh, in the during the early nuclear age. He actually had a hand in designing a whole new type of nuclear reactor, very applied, you know, uh, and as well as daydreaming about kind of the logistics of, of alien civilizations and the origins of life and the long, long distant uh, future of, of consciousness and beyond. He was sort of an unbounded thinker. Uh, he was also over the last sort of uh, 25 or 30 years of his life, increasingly known as uh, as an author, as a nonfiction essayist and, and author. His very first book was a sort of um, really, I think, very moving set of, of, of memoirs of autobiographical reflections um, called Disturbing the Universe. Came out in the very end, late 1970s, was a finalist for the National Book Award. And then for many, many people got to know him and, and his sort of wit and his insights because he was a longtime contributor and essayist for places like the New York Review of Books. So he became a kind of person of letters and a kind of broader public intellectual, having started in very, very narrow esoteric areas of mathematics and physics. Mm-hmm. To what extent is, if, if, if the people listening to this have not heard of Dyson, is he a household name? What, where does he kind of fit into the world of physics? And, and I mean, maybe a, a way to frame that question is, is he properly rated, underrated, overrated? <laughs> is the goal of a book like this to, you know, c- correct his uh, reputation? Because um, he doesn't strike me as someone who is as universally known as maybe perhaps he could or should. Yeah, so it's hard to gauge um, <laughs> um, uh, proper levels of, of, yes. of popular esteem. But I will say he, he is broadly known, uh, again, largely, I think, by his writings, his essays mm-hmm. and, and his uh, award-winning books, uh, which continue, which many of which are still in print and continue to, to reward their readers. Um, he also was, I mean, as going back to this kind of unbounded curiosity and, and, and creativity, he introduced many ideas that some of our listeners might actually know about without knowing they came from mm-hmm. this particular person like mm. the Dyson Sphere, mm. which was mm-hmm. picked up originally was a, was actually a fairly serious uh, scientific study that Dyson uh, uh, undertook. And then it was sort of just just waiting to be picked up by um, fans in science fiction. It features in you know, Star Trek episodes and beyond. So, so part of his... Um, of his kind of broader uh, intellectual legacy really does spill into popular culture. Uh, He wasn't as 
he never became a household name like someone like Stephen Hawking or Albert Einstein. Within the physics community, his name is still rightly uh, uh, front and center. Many, many you know, particular phenomena named in his honor and papers that are rightly renowned. And beyond that, I think he had um, a, a greater familiarity with non-scientists than, than typical, though not perhaps you know, all the way mm-hmm. to uh, trending on Twitter or whatever yeah, yeah. it might be. It's interesting. One of the things that really struck me in this book and that we're going to talk about in this conversation um, is that despite the fact that he was such an unbounded thinker, as you said, he, he I mean, he touched everything, right? He touched every uh, type of science. He has this endless imagination. It was like, let's, you know, nuclear weapons, propulsed uh, rocket ships yep. and life on other planets mm-hmm. and comets with uh, that can grow a biosphere. And yet he, he was simultaneously very... Um, representative of his era, mm-hmm. right? Um, so huge imagination, but you can study his career and learn a lot about the history of physics and science in the in the 20th century. So we're going to get to both of those things. But before we do, um, you start off the book with your personal uh, recollections of meeting Dyson. So what was your, how did you come to uh, get to know the man? Yeah, so I want to be clear. I never got to know him very well. It's not like we were very close friends, but he was just remarkably generous to me on many, many occasions over the span of 20 years. And, and I've come to learn, uh, all the more so while working on the book, that, that my experience was actually quite typical. It wasn't so unusual after all. So I first met Dyson back in January of 2001, so more than 20 years ago, uh, when I was working on what, what would become my first book. It was a book on um, uh, history of uh, physicists, really what is physicists to this day, most successful scientific theory called um, quantum electrodynamics, uh, which is a mouthful, but it's basically the, the first successful kind of merging of two of these really distinct pillars of modern physics, quantum theory on the one side and relativity on the other, in this case, special relativity. And it's, to this day, the, the, the best way we know how to describe the interaction of things like charged particles and light, and, and, and from there, a whole lot more. And I was fascinated by this topic as a physicist. I was especially fascinated as an historian. It had a very rich history. Some of my friends and mentors had also already been studying that. And so I wanted to understand how did a kind of working knowledge of that set of ideas be, get cultivated and, more important for, to me, kind of begin to grow, begin to, to span out or, or disperse. And one of the names most closely associated with that work is Richard Feynman, who mm-hmm. did go on to be something closer to a kind of household mm-hmm. name, mm-hmm. Um, kind of a, a broader renown. Um, and it turns out one of his early kind of acolytes and partners was Freeman Dyson. And so I was eager to talk with Dyson. By this point, uh, um, Feynman had, had, alas, long since passed away. I was able to access some of his papers and stuff uh, from his archives. Dyson was al- he was around. He was alive. He was actually quite spry. And I emailed, could I come speak with you? Of course, of course, come anytime. He was just super sweet. And he was then uh, still a professor at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, where he'd been on the faculty at that point for decades and decades. And he stayed there right up until until he passed away. So I drove down to Jersey uh, and met with him and, and audio recorded an interview. We probably sat for at least two hours. He was extremely generous with his time. And I would just have all these questions about who did he know? Who did he work with? What did he think? What did he do? And then I said, as I was round, wrapping up the interview, I said, you know, I, I've seen reference to some of your personal letters to your family in, in other colleagues' work. Are they available? You know, could I maybe take a look? It actually felt very uh, presumptuous. I mean, I know he shared them with, with other scholars. Uh, it wasn't like I was asking to read his journal, but it felt very personal. And I was a little almost embarrassed to even ask. And he just literally, I still can see it, he hopped out of his chair. He was a spry, spry, you know, he was in his 70s, but it was taking stairs two at a time. He was just amazing, uh, young in spirit, as we'd say. Hops out of his chair, starts opening all these file cabinets in his office where we were, where we were sitting, taking out these, you know, huge, you know, several linear feet of, of stacks of, of old manila envelopes in yellowed pages. He says, here, here they are. And I, and I was just, it was like Fort Knox. I mean, I couldn't believe my eyes what he's put, pulling out there, these letters. And then he says, you know, don't bother trying to take notes on them. Here's a key, a spare key to my office. Here's a photocopier. Just Xerox them, right? Just... just just, you know, have the collection. <laughs> and I, I, to this day, I look back and say, wow. what an extraordinary, you know, generous thing to do. And the letters were were, were really um, just 
amazing to read through. You, 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 he started writing letters home. Uh, actually, it turns out during the Second World War, uh, and then he continued the practice when he moved to the United States as a graduate student, and, and he kept it up for for decades. Uh, and unbeknownst to him at the time, his mother was saving all the letters, so he was writing sort of daily missives or or maybe one or two a week, and you're kind of jotting them off. They really were uh, the way we might handle emails or even you know kind of social media posts today. This was all happening by hand or in a, a hand typed you know. Uh, a manual typewriter, and they were kind of um, occasional musings, uh, really meant to be ephemeral. And yet, literally decades later, I think it was after his mother had passed away, or certainly when she was later in life, uh, he found that she'd been saving all these letters for decades and decades, an amazing trove. Uh, so they, they wound up back in his possession, and then through his generosity, he shared them with people like me and other scholars, and, and now they're deposited uh, at the American uh, Philosophical Society archive in Philadelphia. So so hopefully more and more generations will get to to, uh, to learn from them. Well, um, yeah, incredible story. And so we're, we're going to get into... Um, it, it is emblematic of, the, of a type of person who... Um, has a larger than life personality and many many quirks. So let's get into that right now. Yeah. Because he he not in addition to being a, a, a scientist, there's actually a there's actually a quote I I, I pulled out, um, uh, uh, which is cited in one of the chapters. The question of how to in, to go into space cannot be separated from the question of why, mm-hmm. which I thought was really. Actually, a deep thought and yeah. emblematic of a scientist who is much, much more than just a scientist narrowly conceived, but really um, a, a deep thinker mm-hmm. about what science should be and 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 uh, its role in society and how we should relate to um, ideas and, in particular, how we should <laughs> fight at all points to subvert <laughs> um, and reject um, dogma. Uh, and so, to that end, I'd like to start with a, with another quote in the book, mm-hmm. which is uh, one of one of Dyson's theories about uh, education. So yeah. I'm gonna. I'm going to say this to you and ask you to explain. Uh-huh. He says, science is presented to our young people as a rigid and authoritarian discipline, but science is meant to be a subversion of authority, an international secret club of heretics and rebels. What does that mean? <laughs> Isn't that a great quotation? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I I think Dyson genuinely meant that. Uh, yeah. You see evidence of that from really from early in his own life. Uh, and he maintained that until, until the end. I mean, 96 years uh, strong. So he really felt that deeply. Uh, and I think it, it shows in his unusual um, upbringing in his own right. He went to kind of classic kind of upper class uh, schools for bright young uh, kids, mostly bright young boys at the time in Britain. Uh, and at that time, you know, science and mathematics were 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 really not the main uh, topic. And, and it was, I don't want to say a finishing school, but it was certainly trying to, to instill the arts of, of rhetoric and persuasion and, and logic and leadership uh, in, you know, in, in, in Britain's next generation. And this would be in the sort of um, 20s and 30s, basically. Uh, and, and so Dyson was, you know, kind of slight of physical stature. Uh, he, he was um, you know, not the big kind of varsity athlete. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he really found a small group of very dear friends, the few others who were also much more curious about nature, about what we now recognize as science and mathematics than they were about um, uh, you know, kind of uh, worldly affairs or, or fancy rhetoric or, or, or so on. And so they would basically escape to the library. They found refuge in libraries, in re- literally dusty books. I mean, old, old, old books, books that were already old by that time. Now they're <laughs> you know, genuinely ancient. Uh, and they would, you know, kind of push each other and teach each other and, and work together, uh, three or four of them at a time. And so it was already from his earliest, you know, kind of uh, grade school days, uh, science as a refuge from what seemed to be the kind of expectations of, of a certain kind of... Um, um, slice of, of society. Uh, now, if you combine that early upbringing with the kind of mental agility that Dyson also was showing from from really, really early on, uh, and this, as, as we've said a few times right now, this sort of unbounded curiosity, you can see why the, the, the kind of prime directive, right, so to speak, for someone like that is just to be unbounded 
in the questions you choose to ask. Uh, and you don't don't uh, just because it's you know been written in a, in a dusty book doesn't mean that's the the final mm-hmm. word. Uh, and especially just because some um, you know teacher who might or might not be you know uh, an expert in what they're uh, hired to teach in an area like uh, science or mathematics at some of these schools, just because they say one thing you know is known to be true doesn't mean that it must be so. Uh, and so I think he just he really found this as a as a social and kind of um, a, almost an emotional uh, kind of f- sense of belonging among these kind of self-described outcasts, mm-hmm. or at least not not the cool kids in school, mm-hmm. put it that way, not in the schools where he was raised. And I think that that stuck with him literally throughout the rest of his life. And even when it comes into um, modern academia and he held extremely prestigious positions at, at a range of universities, both in the UK and, and in the United States, he would chafe. He would just chafe against not just the kind of way things are always done, but even about sort of disciplinary boundaries, stay in your lane, you're a physicist, I do mm. this over here. And there's uh, many, again, sort of examples or, or uh, encounters of that throughout the book, including uh, in the chapter by uh, Robert Digraph, who served for years, in a sense, as Dyson's boss. Mm. Robert, until very recently, was director of the Institute for Advanced Study in mm. Princeton. And, uh, and, and Robert wrote, I think, a really just lovely chapter about focus on Dyson's efforts to keep the Institute from kind of from from reverting to the mean of a kind of rigid set of disciplines where people do what they're supposed to do and and, Mm -hmm. and kind of again stay in their lane Mm -hmm. so even as as a uh, as a kind of grown-up you know Mm -hmm. uh, thinker uh, Dyson was constantly constantly trying to push against the kind of encroaching the kind of you know encrusting of disciplinary boundaries Uh, and he took he just that it was it was dear to him and and he and he he made it true in his own thinking and tried to reassess that or re- re- reassert that in, in his institutions as well. Did he have a level of brilliance that made this possible or was it more just a matter of, you know, attitude? Um, was he just a, a, a pure genius who could float from subject to subject or was it uh, was it really just, yeah, a, a, ref- a refusal to ever be shackled <laughs> by any particular set of ideas? I, I think it was some of both. I mean, it's, it, we, you know, I think historians are very correct to use to apply caution using words like genius yes. especially given the history of the term and <laughs> its uses and misuses and now we know our blind spots yes. better than, than, than we did before so so I want to be sensitive to that as well on the other hand I think it's un, it's it's undeniable that Dyson was displaying certain kinds of mental feats yeah. at an age where this was deeply unusual. We right. can call it genius or not, but it was certainly sure. deeply unusual. The family lore has it that he was basically summing infinite series in the crib. Even if that's an exaggeration, <laughs> he did it while he was a toddler and, and not living in a crib. That's still not what most people on the planet you know have been doing. There, so that's what I, I use the phrase sort of mental agility. That mm-hmm. he just he, there was a kind of springiness or sprightliness to his thinking which was not terribly common was it unique in the in the history of the planet no but it was also you know a few clicks beyond uh, beyond mm-hmm. typical and you combine that with frankly a kind of attitude that he an ambition and, and a kind of mental exploring a kind of refusal to sit still at least intellectually and that's a, a pretty powerful combination so it's not that he was a kind of pure you know intellect floating in, in the abstract he was really able to to set himself up in a way to, to let these other features really kind of uh, g- give it their best go. Um, so, I, so I think it's, I think it's a combination. And uh, an example is, you know, he, he was, or his, his, his biggest triumph in the sciences and the one that really helped establish the path that, that he was able to follow came when he was very young. He was essentially a graduate student, as, as, as you know. He never bothered completing his PhD. So he was, to the end of his life, Mr. Dyson. That was not just um, an affectation. It was true. Because he he sort of put these things together that others had been struggling with for a generation, not for a semester, for a generation, uh, some of the most accomplished uh, members of of the field in in theoretical physics. And he saw through what had been stumbling blocks for, you know, Nobel laureates and, 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 and others. And he did that, you know, as a very, very young person, still in his 20s. And then he had a go at what was going, to, what would have been a typical university career: training graduate students, you know, getting grants, pursuing research projects with younger scholars, postdocs, grad students, undergrads. And he he lasted about two years. <laughs> he, he he took he was he was offered a different position at the Institute for Advanced Study, which is not really a school. There are no mm-hmm. students. There are no degrees. There are a small number of scholars who are paid to sit and think. And the joke when the institute was founded was from a, a, a skeptic of this was to 
to say, well, I can see how you can tell if they're sitting. How do you know they're <laughs> thinking, right? They're just, there's no requirements. There's no, get these PhD students out, write this grant, publish these articles. Dyson was prolific. He published many, many articles, but it was really going to be on his own terms and on his own time. So he, he essentially flees a very, very prestigious kind of traditional faculty appointment at his first opportunity. Uh, and I think he was still in his 20s when he becomes a member, permanent member of the Institute uh, for whom for, for which his responsibility was to get back to thinking without bounds, right? Mm-hmm. Think, 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 uh, and hopefully, you know, um, nudge the field along, but but not do it on a kind of, you know, kind of annual report, um, uh, incremental kind of uh, timescale. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, there's another idea that like uh, you know the Institute for Advanced Study is where great mathematicians go to you know uh, do nothing <laughs> or, or something to that effect. But Dyson was the exact opposite. In fact, he he didn't just think think think. He did a lot of do do do. He did. Um, in particular, um, on on some of the most uh, ambitious and wild and imaginative and you know in retrospect unusual. I think it's really uh, difficult to conceive of just how strange the kind of post-war yeah. 1950s 1960s period was in. Terms terms of what was being conceived of as being possible, the relationship between science and government, nothing was kind of figured out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there was none. There was not this big grant-making apparatus and the, the, the permeability between government and military and scientific apparatus and industry was, was, was far less murky and therefore individuals like Dyson could just kind of flow freely between these things. How did he... Um, Maybe maybe starting with his own experience during World War II, mm-hmm. how did he come to be involved with um, the, the the war effort, and then subsequently um, a number of the U.S. Uh, military's uh, goings on? Throughout the fifties, yeah. So he again, he was a very young person when the Second World War broke out. Of course, uh, it will be clear to at least some listeners. It, it, re- it began affecting people in places like Britain long before it even uh, uh, was a fact of daily life in the United States. So from he he was really quite young. In fact, he was an undergraduate still. So he he paused his studies. He was he was basically recruited into the war effort from Cambridge, uh, where he was a student of, of pure mathematics. He clearly had an extraordinary gift for for uh, for mathematics from again from a very early age, and he was brought into um, to one of the divisions of the um, basically advise or consult for the Royal Air Force in in Britain, and they were as we now know as many historians have written about and, and one of the the, the, the best informed of, of those historians has a chapter on that in the book uh, Will Thomas, they were creating basically a, a new kind of kind of quantitative um, reasoning uh, that soon after the war would spread very very uh, beyond military consulting but it, st- it really had its start in places like the Royal Air Force uh, in Britain and comparable efforts in other countries and that was to try to do kind of sophisticated statistical analyses of things like the effectiveness of bomber raids right mm-hmm. so so um, the, the the British Air Force was organizing all kinds of, of bombing raids uh, against, for example, the Nazis by this point. Um, and there was questions about the optimal configurations. How, how do you fly the raids? How often does, should a certain you know a crew uh, you know return to flight? And what's the configuration of the planes once they're up there? What's the strategies for uh, for using limited resources? And trying to get you know a kind of statistical precision instead of just going with kind of gut or what was done in the previous mm. war. The, the joke that. Generals are always, are always fighting based on what happened mm-hmm. in the previous war. So Dyson, as literally an undergraduate maths student, is 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 brought into that study, into that effort. Uh, and it was really, really um, a dramatic turn for him, as he wrote about in his letters to his parents at the time, and it's certainly reflected on with... with um, with increasing insight over the years, that was on the one hand one of his first tastes of really a kind of bureaucracy that he found very stultifying. He got uh, he was some would say maybe overly critical actually of how rigid it was. It turns out other historians like Will and others have been able to show actually there was there was more creativity and flow of information than than in Dyson's kind of recollections. Nonetheless, Dyson saw himself immersed in a system that he just couldn't understand or ultimately respect, that the the, the best ideas weren't always heard because of, of a kind of stultifying rigidity, at least as Dyson came to see it. 
nonetheless, he had also had a, a, a crash course taste in, you know, the kind of highfalutin calculating can have real world consequences. Mm. When he met some of these young kids his age who were the pilots or, or, or mm. members of the crew of these of these very, very dangerous, you know, very high casualty rate missions uh, from from, say, the Royal Air Force. So he had a, he had a, an early, early kind of, we might say, loss of innocence. But sure, he might be studying pure number theory for the glory of it. He's also going to realize very quickly that kind of scientific reasoning and quantification uh, is going to bump up against some of the most, you know, kind of um, freighted episodes in, in, in what was already a very bloody 20th century. So he had he had this kind of twinned view from much earlier than I think would be typical um say today so then he went he after the war he returns to his studies and he realizes where it's at now is really going to be theoretical physics uh, more than in pure mathematics uh he actually set himself a challenge if he could prove a particular kind of stubborn theorem in number theory then he'd go on in pure mathematics if he couldn't then he'll give up and just as his consolation prize go into theoretical physics that's the sort of challenge he set for himself as an undergraduate he worked his hardest uh, and made some incremental progress, published a math article, but didn't actually solve the theorem he set out uh, to, to, to prove. So he said, okay, I'll, he'll try his hand at physics. And by that point, he, he realized soon after the end of the war that the real center of gravity had moved to the United States in areas like nuclear physics and beyond, especially after the uh, Manhattan Project and such things. So he, he uh, got a fellowship from the British government, a so-called Commonwealth Fellowship that enabled him to come to the United States for two years of study. And he came to Cornell and began working with Hans Bethe, who himself was just fresh from Los Alamos, from wartime weapons projects, and again had become a kind of emblem of this post-war kind of hybrid figure, pursuing very, very esoteric, abstract studies and sort of the nuclear reactions that make stars burn, famously, for which Bethe ultimately earned his own Nobel Prize, but also continuing to consult each summer for the nuclear uh, weapons uh, complex. He was working on uh, designs of H-bombs after the war and so on. He was he, he maintained uh, a level of, of, of a kind of immersion in the practical affairs, one might say, in the military implications, some military implications of otherwise very abstract or uh, fundamental research. That's the world into which Dyson now enters as a very young grad student very soon after the end of the Second World War. And so it's not too surprising that Dyson, who was, was not in the U.S.-based wartime projects, uh, was nonetheless kind of whisked into that world or ha- had windows into that world uh, because that's, that was the set of mentors, of colleagues that he very soon was surrounded with. Can, can you say a bit about um, that, that loss of innocence, right? So, I mean, you know, um, right now, if you train to be a physicist, it's highly improbable you've spent any time in weapons design. You are whisked from the classroom to the lab to the postdoc to the professorship. Um, but there's now this generation of physicists who, um, uh, including Hans Bethe, you mentioned Richard Feynman, Robert Oppenheimer, uh, von Neumann, a number of people at the Institute for Advanced Study, That's right. who had spent the last uh, three to five years uh, at the at the center of the mm-hmm. the war effort in many ways here at uh, MIT, yeah. ra- the invention of radar, uh, people like Vannevar Bush, uh, the invention of the atomic bomb. What what did that do to the kind of um, I don't know spirit of the time in the physics community or the mindset that people approached their their science with that that Dyson was obviously entering into. Yeah, so I, it's a great question. It had a lot of effects, and something that you know many historians have written about. It, it, that's um, been central to some of my other historical writings. It, it does thread through the, this this new book as well. So, at the level of institutions, and you already gave a kind of preview of this. It, it, it in some sense, uh, a U.S.-based um, research enterprise, especially in, in physics and, and closely allied areas of, of physical sciences and engineering, they sort of never fully demobilized after the end of the war. That wartime arrangements were carried over on purpose uh, into the post-war era. Uh, at, and places like MIT, this became um, the norm. And then that became a template that then had many uh, kind of similar effects throughout North America, not only there, also in the UK and, and, and elsewhere. And so uh, that means things like a focus on multidisciplinary laboratories that were still funded overwhelmingly by areas of um, the the uh, U.S. defense agency, the military branches, uh, even for projects that were not directly tied to a kind of um, specific military outcome, but the the military may had, had um, military leaders and, and other policymakers, especially in the U.S. and in the U.K. and elsewhere, 
took a lesson from the Second World War to be that getting lots and lots of these people together in configurations that were unusual, that wasn't how university departments had been arranged beforehand, and giving them a level of material support, of resources, of funding, of equipment, of instrumentation, of just, you know, exponentially different scale than what had been the norm Mm. before the war, that you're going to get lots of smart people training the next generation of lots of smart people. Mm. And the the argument that really carried the day for most of those policymakers was they don't have to work on specific kind of narrow, what would be called mission-oriented projects. They don't have to make better gadgets per se, necessarily. They have to make a community that that has the best skills in the world and has grown up using the most uh, the best equipment in the world so that if the cold war ever turns into into outright open fighting if there's open fighting like the second world war again then you don't have to scramble to staff up these these what would then be much more mission oriented laboratories like for radar like for the uh, atomic bomb and so the the bargain was that you should get these folks working in configurations that get engineers and scientists of many stripes working really elbow to elbow uh, day and night, and you should fund them lavishly because they're going to produce a really important product, new PhDs. And that was how they, they talked about PhD students as literally a commodity, and you mm-hmm. would count them up and stockpile them and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's, again, the world that Dyson uh, and many others um, kind of that, – that becomes the, the new normal. On top of that, uh, some people, as I mentioned, like Beta, then start making regular trips often over the summers to continue more focused, more more hands-on consulting for, um, for example, the defense agencies. Um, whether it was to uh, and then and for some of them that that became uh, working on things like disarmament. So it was still focused on practicalities of the nuclear age. Some of them it was like, is this design going to work of a new weapon? Others was like, this is you know something that requires the kind of quantification, the careful scientific mindset uh, that Dyson had begun to hone um, with the statistical analyses for for. Um, operations research. So either way, this became, you know, a facet, not the defining characteristic necessarily, but a clear part of the new normal mm. for this generation of which Dyson uh, was was a key member. Mm. Well, uh, let, maybe let's just talk quickly about a couple of these specific projects he was involved in. I learned a lot from this uh, book about Jason, which was this, um, well, maybe, maybe you can describe uh, yeah. what it was and Dyson's role in it. And it's kind of almost this conspiracy uh, defense contract uh, support um, organization that he was, he was a part of. Well, okay. I'll take, I'll take uh, issue with a few of those comments. No, first, first, just to say, sure. it's actually, it's, it's, we shouldn't use the past tense. It still exists. So the right, Jasons okay, right. still exist. They yes. were, they were formed soon after the surprise launch of Sputnik. Yes. So it does have its origins in this kind of high cold war, you know, drama and tension uh, starting the, in the late fifties. I guess the group might've been formally founded closer to 1960, but the impetus was, was in play really starting late 19, 57. Uh, and the idea was to get a bunch of civilian scientists, and they were in the early years predominantly physicists and mathematicians. Now I think, I assume the membership has expanded. But in the early days, that was seen as the folks with what, what felt like the most relevant expertise, rightly or wrongly. That was the assumption of the time. And they were meant to be actually a kind of independent review board um, to, who could consult with you know experts in uh, various parts of uh, the federal government, including, of course, the military branches, but to almost serve as kind of referees. Mm. And so I think many of them at least took as their goal, uh, took as their mission to be kind of peer review for projects and enthusiasms that were otherwise classified and behind the fence, so to speak. So they weren't open to the kind of, they weren't subject to the kind of scrutiny Mm. that ordinary scientific articles go through then as now in, say, open peer review. So uh, it it, it had an air of, I can see why the word conspiratorial (laughs) be used, because it was secret. They had to get proper uh, clearances to handle classified materials. Membership was not formally kept secret, but also not often talked about. Mm. Uh, And there's a complication that Dyson himself uh, kind of saw firsthand, especially at the height of the of the fighting the Vietnam War, where by that point um, the group uh, was was considered much more suspicious by anti-war uh, various anti-war uh, physicists, let alone other other uh, citizens. Uh, and so Dyson, you know, was was part of that again from from the earliest cohort. He was he was kind of asked to come from the folks putting it together because he already by that point had proven that he was capable and really interested in 
And, and again, what we call applied engineering projects. By that point, he'd already taken a sabbatical, for example, from the Institute and spent a year working with a private company with a defense contractor called, at the time, General Atomics, that was designing um, a new nuclear reactor. And Dyson was was giddy with this. He, mm-hmm. His letters home to his family say, mm-hmm. this is so interesting. It's so fascinating. I actually have more skills at this than I expected. I finally feel like mm-hmm. I'm doing something useful. I mean, mm-hmm. these are the, the flavor of, of his letters home to his parents from the, uh, from the mid-50s. When he's working with, you know, physicists, mathematicians, engineers, material scientists, a whole kind of multidisciplinary team, much like had been the, the kind of novelty of these of these uh, wartime projects. He, he took out he's a, a co-author on at least one patent related to that, probably more than one. Um, and the reactors actually went into production and they were actually a commercial product uh, and, and installed in many, many places. They, they, they built sort of novel safety features into what was then the earliest phases of a kind of commercial nuclear power industry. And Dyson was, was just all in on that. Uh, and even temporarily contemplated leaving the institute and moving full time into that, and then he said, "No, actually, he'll, he'll, he he didn't want to give up the kind of uh, home base he had um, at the Institute for Advanced Study that he uh, uh, recently, you know, arrived at." So he he was immersed in that even before the Jasons. He began working um, for uh, disarmament agencies uh, first as actually as a skeptic. He thought there was a role to be played in nuclear testing, and then again by the kind of quantitative reasoning that he began to hone uh, in the Second World War, he actually convinced himself. Uh, and and Finkbeiner's chapter in the book really uh, focuses on this. Some include some of Dyson's own handwritten notes to himself, just plotting the number of above-ground nuclear tests. And this is clearly becoming a kind of runaway exponential. He says, this is not sustainable. Mm-hmm. It was a kind of statistical quantitative reasoning that mm-hmm. he'd applied in many, many areas, whether it was quantum theory or runaway nuclear re- reactions in a reactor uh, or indeed um, a now geopolitical uh, consideration about nuclear testing. He said, OK, he changed his mind. He, mm-hmm. he sort of saw the data, saw the trend. I said, enough. This is no longer uh, his own arguments for why testing might have been helpful for making, uh, you know, a kind of reliable um, um you know, set of armaments. He said, it's it, too bad, right? Mm-hmm. That, that uh, is not sustainable. And he moved more squarely into disarmament camp. So you see him grappling with and indeed advising, you know, some of the highest levels of, in this case, the U.S. federal government, open to changing his mind, but immersed in, uh, on the one hand, the details that really matter, the kind of literally nuts and bolts, but also bringing to it a kind of powers of 10 abstraction that had been kind of his earliest, uh, almost one might say, native language as a, as a mathematical physicist. Mm. Yeah, I think um, there's there's so much in there um, to pick up on. There is a great photo in the book that is just, I mean, this, you know, um, lo- logarithm, it's a, it's, a, it's a linear graph of the logarithm right. of, you know, the number of nuclear weapons in the world. And it's just this clear, you know, line of best fit that just shows that the number of uh, nukes is rising exponentially. And that, you know, um, th- that's the reason we need a, a defense, um, a test ban treaty. That's right. And it, I should say that it was actually, of, it was just a number of, of confirmed above ground tests, let alone the, the armaments in the stockpile. Right, I see. And it's Dyson's handwritten yes, text on yes, graph yes. paper. He's wow. just, you know, it's long before we could do this on our fancy computers. He says, you know, he's, he's literally taking notes yeah. with, with pen in hand. Well, yeah. Um, but that, yes, and then even even to the point where that would, to, to, to your point, affect his own uh, ability to do these uh, projects, he was very willing to pivot, which is all the more interesting because mm-hmm. a, a running theme throughout your introduction to the book and uh, Dyson's later career was a, a controversial position on the matter of climate change. Yes. Um, which illustrates that this kind of quantitative reasoning, you know, p- people of immense brilliance can use their gifts of, uh, you know, statistical analysis uh, towards ends that we might not uh, agree with. Um, yeah, it, was it already at this time that, that Dyson was thinking about climate? Because, you know, w- one thing that is true is that meteor- meteorological assessments of uh, the climate have been going on far longer than the last, you know, since, uh, whatever, an inconvenient truth. Yes. It's been happening well since the, the, the Cold War era. But how did Dyson come to uh, that problem in particular? And how did his views on that matter evolve? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Matthew. And I did write about this pretty extensively in the introduction because it's a facet of Dyson's career and legacy that is uh, that we have to really 
really try to make sense of and, and, and reckon with, even if in the end we don't wind up agreeing with, with his ending conclusion. And I certainly don't, personally. So, I, so it was important to me to understand what was the nature of how he thought about this and, and what was the arc? Because it turns out there, like on the question of, for example, disarmament in, in the, uh, with nuclear weapons, it wasn't a static picture. Mm. Uh, and he, he changed his mind. In this case, I would say in a in the opposite way from from uh, both the you know now just undeniable scientific consensus that was really in, in clear evidence um, for for quite a while. So it turns out Dyson's first encounter with these ideas goes back really early to soon after he joined the Institute for Advanced Study in the mid fifties. Wow. Really early. One of the things that seemed most important uh, was the earliest days of programmable electronic computing. Uh, and uh, someone you mentioned earlier, John von Neumann, was also a, a, a fixture at the Institute, another one of these kind of head-in-the-cloud mathematicians who also was very worldly, had a, uh, worked uh, very hard on uh, uh, nuclear weapons, for example, during the Second World War, and became one of the real pioneers in trying to make computing uh, a part of our, frankly, of our daily lives. He ran, uh, he built and had a small team that was working with one of the earliest programmable uh, computers still using vacuum tubes. This This is now starting even before transistors at the Institute. So this is incredible incongruity between this sort of loud, clanking, kind of cryogenically cooled 20,000 vacuum tubes humming along in, uh, and then otherwise, you know, paces away. These kind of people were supposed to be lost in thought and, and, and really kind of otherworldly. And so one of the, so Oppenheimer, uh, who was at that point the director of the Institute for Advanced Study, convened a conference at the Institute in the mid-50s on kind of how do we try to understand um, meteorological and climactic modeling now that we have these early tools like von Neumann's computers, and, and they all saw kind of more on the horizon. What's the what's best known today about things like um, the, flo- the the sort of circulation of um, of what would soon be called kind of greenhouse gases within the oceans, between the oceans and the atmosphere? These were huge questions then. Uh, and what's the role of things like numerical modeling and computation? I try to clarify that. So Dyson kind of uh, he was that was in his you know uh, right in his in his office practically right in his in his, uh, his institution. He attended that meeting and and heard some of the earliest discussions of of these open questions. That even then, in the mid to late 50s, folks were saying there's a real problem looming, or there could be a real problem, because you know things like carbon dioxide can be trapping heat inside the atmosphere, and, and this could lead to all kinds of um, runaway cycles. How do we understand it? So Dyson had the idea, uh, was open to the topic already quite early. Uh, many years later in the 70s, he spent a sabbatical um, at a, a kind of energy-focused think tank associated with the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee. And there he really delved into the topic. And in, if you go back and, and he published on it, he wrote um, a peer-reviewed articles that were, again, kind of sounding the alarm. They were uh, those articles, I'd say, by my from where I sit, are on kind of the right side of history. Mm. It's, it's, it's fascinating. He says there really is a, a climate crisis coming this the green the greenhouse gas and and the the circulation of these kind of heat trapping gases between uh, ocean atmosphere and so on this really is happening now and it's only going to accelerate and it calls for big creative thinking and so his main thing is to say I'm not he says I'm not a, you know an environmental chemist or or an earth scientist what he can he do is bring his kind of open-ended imagination, again, his kind of powers of 10 scaling style mm. arguments, which he'd honed by this point throughout his whole career, say, what are viable efforts to try to buy us some time? He said, we have to do something. You know, we can't sit still. He's saying that very clearly in his peer-reviewed articles in the 70s. And he, he realizes that you could try to do things like plant lots of trees. And he's not just like, a, you know, a kind of um, say that and, and leave it alone. He runs the numbers. What if people tried to dedicate substantial amounts of kind of ground cover without interrupting, you know, necessary agriculture, just keep feeding a growing population? He's taking these things into consideration, but basically plant certain kinds of ground cover that can be especially good at carbon sequestration. And he says that's not going to solve the problem. That might buy us 50 years because he was deeply interested in kind of uh, techno-futurism. He says 50 years might buy us enough time to kind of get us off of a fossil fuel economy. He, and he says again in the 70s, nothing's going to be able to change until we rebuild kind of society, technology, and the economy. And he, and he rightly says that won't happen right away. Mm-hmm. So he says we can't do kind of planetary engineering and fix the problem in 50 years. We could buy ourselves time with, you know, and he, and he lays out the numbers, this amount uh, of, of kind of basically 
certain kinds of plant life, a modest kind of carbon tax long before that was a, a popular kind of a policy idea among economists or policymakers, very reasonable numbers. And he runs the numbers, say, this really is realistic. It'll buy us 50 years. We, ha- we can't sit still and do nothing. And he's deeply immersed in it, working with experts, spending a sabbatical, really um, uh, trying to contribute. Okay. Next, he gives uh, um, uh, an invited lecture at Oxford in the UK in 1990. By this point, you know, he's, he's clearly less involved day to day in the topic, still deeply interested in it. And now his concern is that he thinks there's been too much attention to some areas of the problem, not enough on others. He's saying, you know, per, you know, human contributed climate change is real. The problem is not going away. He's still he's not he's certainly not a climate denier by a climate change denier by any measure. But he's concerned about the kind of distribution of resources. He he sees a kind of crystallization of the kind of disciplinary blinders, at least in his in his reckoning, the kind of thing he'd been railing against since his own you know uh, early school days. He's concerned that there's too much uh, attention to numerical modeling, not enough attention to a range of empirical measurements of different kinds of things like the flow of a carbon cycle around uh, different parts of the ocean. So he's basically calling for a redistribution of policy, not uh, certainly nothing like a climate denialism or climate change denialism. Uh, and by that point, he also says, I'm not the main expert here. This is what I see as as an interested kind of bystander who understands this is a complicated multidisciplinary task. Let's not revert to our disciplinary camps. In that sense, it was a kind of iconoclastic outsider saying, we all, this is a big problem. Are we doing enough? And and he has you know, critiques of, of the establishment rather than of the problem they're trying to solve. Another 15 years go by, and his next big, big kind of pronouncement on the topic comes in 2005. And there, he's again, by his own lights, he's been kind of disconnected from the actual research on the topic by now for quite a while. Uh, nothing like the 1970s. He was really kind of working, uh, you know, um, uh, elbow to elbow with some of the leading experts. And, and by now, he really comes out not denying uh, the facts of climate change, but denying that it's going to be as big a problem as other big problems that he is rightly concerned about. The spread of infectious disease, the, uh, the unending challenges of poverty. I mean, he has, uh, uh, you know, to my mind, an appropriate list of concerns mm. on his mind. Mm. And what's curious and actually deeply frustrating is that he disconnects those in his mind from challenges of climate change. He, um, this was right, he gives his talk at Boston University very, just weeks after the horrible devastation of Hurricane Katrina. Even then, the experts who were studying these things were able to show compelling evidence about linkages between global climate change and the ferocity, the destructiveness of things like hurricanes, and, and one of which had just been uh, on horrible display. And Dyson kind of d- doesn't make that connection and instead says we have to worry about things like infectious disease and emerging diseases and other things, which is true. And also, as was already becoming more clear to experts then and, and much more evidence since then, also only getting compounded and getting worse by things like you know, global uh, climate change. So he, he's sort of choosing topics he thinks are going to be more pressing in the near term. And again, making a kind of more bombastic critique of the distribution of energy, attention, and resources uh, in, in ways that he considers no longer you know, up to the task. What he also doesn't do is correct the other people who, ch- who, who latch on to his now very public statements and run with it in ways that I think he, he certainly didn't intend. He was never, never a climate change denier, even to the end of his life. He didn't spend much energy con- correcting people who quoted him, uh, if, who, who did espouse those other positions. So that was we, uh, the kindest way to put that as a missed opportunity. I think it was wrong. I think he should have been more proactive in correcting other people's uses of his kind of critiques from from outside. I also think, frankly, uh, he was, you know, a pretty smart fella. Uh, It would have been nice if he'd spent more time because he was capable of it, really trying to get up to speed on on the range of cutting edge research across the the full gamut of of, uh, scientific fields of study that by by the early 2000s was, was readily available, that people really were learning you know, pretty mm-hmm. significant things even then, let alone what we all have learned over the intervening uh, decades, uh, that the, you know the, the his critiques, I think, would have been more helpful, frankly, if he was closer to those, you know, um, conducting the studies. If he could, if he could have been the, the friendly critic who was aware, better informed about the cutting edge, 
as he had been in the 70s, as he was even kind of closer to by the end of the 80s. But by, by the time he starts making the, the statements that grab the headlines, he was already, again, even by his own lights, kind of further removed and kind of on to new questions. Mm-hmm. And, and that's his prerogative. But he, he, he frankly, I think, d- didn't do enough to say, you're reading me out of context for those mm-hmm. who are saying even Dyson says climate change isn't real, something he certainly never, ever mm-hmm. said or, or, or believed. And his, his efforts to kind of, you know, walk the middle line, I think, didn't quite have the impact that that his really outspoken statements then then kind of spiraled. Mm-hmm. It's a long answer, but I think it was complicated, and and, yeah. and I and I learned all of that actually just from, from working on this part of the book because to me I knew the the kind of um, unfortunate uh, I would call them outbursts or, or or strongly held claims that he made and would would circulate late in his life, and I was totally unaware of this kind of arc, the trajectory of of his at times much closer engagement with the topic. Yeah, it's a shame because when you search. You know, for instance, Freeman Dyson on YouTube, the first page of results are, you know, various pronouncements on the matter of climate change from fringe, you know, channels that are taking either taking statements out of context or editing things in such a way that it just it does look like, you know, abject uh, climate denialism. And 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 to your point, it's clear that he, you know, uh, did not do much to explicitly tell people to stop taking those words in that context. And, right. uh, um, but there also, is there also a sense in which uh, he was just a, a, a natural contrarian? I mean, uh, th- yeah. there was some quote about if you want Freeman Dyson to agree with you, surround him by people who disagree with you, yes. and then he will come to, you know, hold the opposite position. Was that part of uh, his views on climate, given that the, you know, the scientific consensus was kind of hardening um, at that time? Absolutely. I think there are two facets to that. One is exactly as you say, that he was this kind of a self-described iconoclast or, or eccentric or, or indeed kind of contrarian. And that had worked wonders in his you know, scientific career time and time again. So that's, that's, um, that's not in itself a bad, you know, kind of um, approach. Uh, the the, the um, Nobel laureate uh, Stephen Weinberg has this great quotation, which, which, which shows up in the book as well. He said it in another context. That when when Dyson sees you know consensus appearing like ice forming on a lake, he thinks his job is to kind of crack yes. it. Like what are we losing by by mm. by the um, by the formation of consensus? We've learned great things, but what's going to be lost from view? Okay, mm. that's a, a position I could I could get behind. I could defend. Not everyone should do that, but you know the the health of the community depends on some people being willing to ask the kind of questions from from again from like friendly outsiders. So that's part one. Part two, as I think, and this was the more hopeful side of Dyson, that, and it's unfortunate that that he, that that what most people would see uh, from a quick YouTube search is this kind of uh, has been mixed up with with mm-hmm. frankly just nasty and and right. I think deeply wrongheaded things that are misrepresenting Dyson's own views, let alone I think that you know, the very 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 clear uh, scientific consensus. I think what drove Dyson for for this was a, a, a kind of optimism, and of a particular kind. He was a techno optimist hmm. in a way that frankly I. I'm not. It's another thing where I'm happy to, to, to <laughs> learn from him and, and ultimately disagree. That he really hoped, I and mean, it was a faith. It wasn't uh, based on fact. It was a faith for him, nurtured from his earliest, earliest childhood days, that people's technological imaginations will 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 make new stuff, a good stuff at a, at an appropriate pace. He wrote, a, you know, a childhood story. When he was really, really young, about you know flying to the moon with rockets, he was he mm. just had this kind of H.G. Wells kind of fascination mm. with, with 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 gadgetry, and and he really believed and frankly hoped that human ingenuity will 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 be able to technologize our way out of the climate change, and we can do it on a faster scale. Now again, that's why I come back to his papers in the seventies. We said we have to buy ourselves fifty years, and then technologies will be will be ready. He did, he knew that wouldn't be an overnight fix. He wasn't in that sense um, a ridiculous optimist, but it was part of his optimistic, you know, techno optimistic uh, you know, again kind of core. That people are smart and we'll be able to kind of gadget our, our way out of the worst of these consequences. Because he agreed that we're doing bad things to the to the climate. Mm-hmm. He just disagreed on how that was being handled by you know by the two uh, thousands. And again, I think you know his imagination, to his credit, knew literally no bounds. 
And unfortunately, uh, you know, human ingenuity um, ha- has not, you know, we haven't gadgetized our way out of this crisis. Uh, and, and in many ways, we've, we've kind of only made things much, much worse in accelerating the cycle over, you know, the past several decades. So I think it was both the contrarian, the kind of I'm going to be the rebel outsider. Um, I see a consensus. I, what, what are we going to overlook? Mm-hmm. Combined with this kind of just childlike hopefulness. I say that not to be disparaging. It was a childlike hopefulness. Uh, one of his daughters, Esther Dyson, who, who wrote, uh, I think, a very moving coda for the book, uh, wrote that, you know, that Freeman was really the, the youngest person ever to die at age 96. Right. Like, that really stuck with me, mm-hmm. that he really was the best kinds of childlike until the very end. And part of that childlike was this kind of optimism for the future, mm. which I find deeply hopeful, even if sometimes that led to, again, I think in this case, some sort of blinders or missed opportunities to at least clarify what he really was most worried about, uh, let alone maybe, you know, uh, get get more informed and, and more recent developments on the topic of climate change. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to take something you just said um, that came from um, Dyson's daughter, Esther. Um, you mentioned him being the most the most youthful 90, 96 year old. Um, there's a there's a really a, a number of actually quite moving uh, features in the book about his f- friendships and, and family life. Yeah. There's a, 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 a discussion that he, I believe, had with his grandmother where she says something to the effect of don't, you know, don't get too stuck in your books because you're going to make all these physics discoveries and then have no one to share them with. Yes. And he, 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 uh, has, has these wise, really, sayings about, you know, when you're when you're part of the scientific community, you have friends uh, everywhere around the world. I think yeah. he really treasured friendships and mm-hmm. family. Um, I remember one of the, one of the authors, uh, authors in this book, um, uh, Ashutosh Jogalikar, he uh, told me uh, various stories about meeting Dyson and much like you with the with the um, the the file folders. Mm-hmm. Um, felt like they really did become friends. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know how often you know octogenarians are making new <laughs> friends with people in their you know late twenties or or thirties, yeah. but he seemed to really treasure um, personal relationships and and friendships and family. And of course, his children are you know writing these uh, really lovely um, uh, sections in the book. Can you say a bit about um, yeah his 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 attitude towards uh, relationships and, and friendships and, and, and family life and how that, um, what, the importance of that to him as a person. Yeah, again, I, I think part of it, not not to say everything was was determined by his early years, yeah. but part of what, I, what, it, what it was, I think, for Dyson was, was a strict... Uh, allergy to hierarchies. Hmm. And so when you say, how could, you know, who would expect a, uh, not just any old, you know, octogenarian, but this, you know, highly decorated, celebrated kind of pinnacle of American academia, uh, really genuinely becoming friends with Ash. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, who, who has, a, you know, a lovely chapter in the book. I think part of it for Dyson was he just delighted in talking with people who did interesting things. Uh, and, and, and it was not... You know, show me your CV first, and then I'll decide whether I'll spend time with you. And that's, of course, a caricature. But he was delightfully open to to interesting ideas and therefore interesting people, uh, and not concerned about the kind of um, you know laurels or or, or or where are they coming from. And again, I he, I think he he reacted against that from against the kind of um, hierarchies from his from his school days, certainly from his experiences uh, in, with the military in the Second World War, and, and throughout. And so I think part of it it, go, it does go together quite quite nicely with his openness to lots and lots and lots of people. Um, and and his and it's bound up with his curiosity. You know, tell me something interesting, and let's and let's go enjoy ideas together. And I think that was he was open to that, literally to the end. Um, and also, as you rightly say, I mean, it, he there's a, some very moving letters uh, that are quoted in, toward the end of the book. Um, he became very close friends with Jeremy Bernstein, the great uh, physicist and, and longtime um, staff writer for the New Yorker and remarkable um, scholar in his own right. I was so thrilled that Jeremy was able to contribute one of the last main chapters. And Jeremy quotes from several of the letters that he and Dyson had shared over many years of friendship. And again, what struck me is much like Dyson's letters to his family, these are at one hand very, very deep, very specialized discussions of things like, you know, um, a, a recent proof in, in abstract mathematics or what did Albert Einstein really think on his route to special relativity and how do we really pin down these things that, that uh, really esoteric things. And then he'll pivot and say, you know, um, you know, I hope you and your wife are, are, are doing well. And we just had this wonderful vacation. The kids, you know, are sick with the flu. It's just the kind of daily life of, of being a, a person surrounded, delighted in being surrounded by family, with by many kids, by uh, by close, close friends, and just by trying to share the kind of, you know, happy mundanities mm. of, 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 of 
family and friends, while also just pivoting, you know, like with barely a semicolon hmm. to the latest proof by some, you know, extremely accomplished mathematician and everything in between, you know, and traveling the world uh, and and delighting in, you know, uh, strange facts about, you know, ziggurats and stuff, just anything that's open yeah. in a play, uh, because that's what it was like uh, to be, you know, a friend of Freeman Dyson. Mm-hmm. I just got the sense, yeah, I, to, to all these things, he's just a mensch. He's just a, <laughs> a good guy. Um, I want to pivot to, you, you've spoken about a lot of the collaborators who have written chapters for this book. How did um, the book come together and how did you come to be the one um, wrangling <laughs> these authors and, and ultimately editing the volume? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I heard um, that Freeman had passed away the, the, the morning that he passed away. Uh, his, his One of his children, George Dyson, whom I had known for many years, a very accomplished historian of science and technology, and I read George's books and we'd known each other for a while. He emailed me right away uh, that morning. I was actually very, very moved. He knew I'd you know, cherished my my uh, you know limited uh, interaction or relationship with, with Freeman, and he let me know uh, the morning that Freeman had passed away. And that really uh, actually sent me back to literally the the, the photocopies I'd made mm-hmm. in, in Freeman's office uh, 20, uh, 21 years earlier. And just thinking about how generous Dyson had been, Freeman Dyson had been to me, you know, as a very young scholar, he didn't owe me anything. And yet again, he just took me right in and and would, would always answer my emails, follow-ups literally for the next 20 years with no hesitation. He'd disagree with me when he wanted to disagree, but he also would still be just as friendly and generous as could be. Uh, and, it, and it really, I just was feeling, frankly, very nostalgic for this person who was not a dear friend, but someone who had been meaningful even to me, let alone uh, to, to so many others. And so I was able to write a short piece kind of in, in, in memory, uh, in honor of, of, of Freeman, um, uh, published just a short essay uh, about those letters and, and kind of recapping what was his, his earliest, biggest scientific kind of achievement on, on quantum electrodynamics and, and uniting the work of people like Richard Feynman and Julian Schwinger and, Schwinger and Sinatiro Tomonagan, just trying to relive or narrate that kind of um, giddy experience as captured by Dyson's letters as well as, you know, uh, other other sources. And soon after that, so that came out in, in, in March of 2020, Dyson died the very end of February 2020. Uh, and soon after that, as, as so many of us in North America are heading into pandemic restrictions, COVID was becoming a real fact of life uh, in North America by that spring, uh, you know, I realized I, I certainly wasn't qualified to write a full biography of Dyson, given the range of his intellectual interests, let alone the, the course of his life. Uh, he wrote, he published, you know, searching articles in the Foundations of Biology. I don't know biology. He published, you know, his work in cosmology, an area that I that I know and love on the physics side, was was just super playful and curious, even for cosmology, which is not limited, in, you know, in imagination, let alone, you know, s- spaceships powered by exploding nukes. And, you know, the full range was beyond, certainly beyond me, and I think beyond m- m- most individuals. But I realized that there were many friends and colleagues who really had immersed themselves in facets, in parts. I had written extensively about Dyson's work in uh, in areas of, of theoretical physics. I could, you know, pull together from my previous research and write a chapter and really sit with that chapter and feel like I could, I, I, I could, I could write knowledge about that. You know, uh, George Dyson, Freeman's son, had written a beautiful book about what's called Project Orion. Uh, this idea, uh, which got further along than I than I had ever imagined. The idea of trying to power, you know, spacecraft by new, by exploding nuclear weapons. So George knows that project inside and out. He could write a chapter, right, based on his extensive knowledge. Will Thomas, a very dear colleague, another historian, wrote his whole wrote a whole book, a marvelous book, on basically things like the invention of wartime statistical reasoning operations research, including Dyson's role. You know, Will could write a great... So that that was the idea. I started brainstorming. We're like, who among the, the, the very smart people uh, that I've been uh, privileged to, to get to know and work with, enough of those people knew enough about different parts of Dyson's remarkable life and career, we could put it together. So by that late spring, I started emailing his folks, consulting with folks like George Dyson, who knew his father's work uh, you know, inside and out, and put together a kind of wish list of, of the authors I'd most want to hear from, like Anne Finkbeiner on the Jasons. Anne wrote a whole magnificent book on the Jasons, this kind of uh, classified consulting group. She knew Freeman Dyson very well from when she worked on that book. I want to hear from Anne on on Dyson on government consulting, with that kind of thing. Or Robert Digraph on how do you maintain 
a certain kind of multidisciplinarity at a place at a very peculiar place like the Institute for French Study, which Robert knew inside and out as its director and as a longtime colleague of, of Freeman's. So that kind of wish list came together. Uh, and, and to my great, great you know, joy, the authors were equally excited about the project. Uh, many of them felt equally kind of strongly about Dyson, even when, when they might have disagreed on this or that particular thing. They, they saw him as an un, unusual person, put it that way. Uh, and so we were able to put together the book. In, in about a year. So in book terms, that's lightning speed. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, that's warp speed uh, in the space of, you know, in, in Dyson's thinking that would have been eons because he was such a, a quick hmm. thinker. But it was a little over a year between when I first reached out to this kind of chapter uh, author wish list and before I had a completed manuscript. I should also say there was great enthusiasm here at the MIT Press. Uh, uh, Jeremy Matthews really loved the idea and championed it right away. And we, I was also really lucky to get to work with uh, Mark Wolverton, who's a very gifted uh, science journalist and writer. Uh, I met him when he spent a, a year at MIT on a, a night science journalism fellowship. So I knew Mark really well, and he really worked with each of the authors to just try to help make sure there was something like not a uniformity of voice but make sure that the chapters really belonged together so i think there's great there's appropriate you know kind of um charismatic voices among very very gifted authors i think uh in these chapters not written in, in one voice but mark behind the scenes did great work with each of the authors to make sure there really was you know not too much repetition between chapters and and really make it a, a make sure it's a book and not just you know a collection of independent essays and one other person i actually really want to um single out if, if that's okay is the illustrator, uh, Laurent Todin, uh, whom I, again, unfortunately, have never had a chance to meet in person. We were working only during, uh, together only during COVID. Um, but uh, Laurent's uh, uh, an artist, a visual artist, and he's been making really marvelous illustrations for other books by colleagues of mine on topics like, um, you know, relativity and modern physics and Einstein and so on. And they're, I think they're whimsical, but really grounded. He really immerses himself in the scientific ideas, the historical context, and makes, I think, really quite quite charming and, and, and kind of content-rich illustrations. So I reached out to Laurent. Would he be interested in doing in working for the book, uh, making illustrations of the book? And thankfully, he, he said yes, and he contributed, uh, I guess, around uh, probably 20 original illustrations throughout the book, picking up on themes of each chapter. And that, again, I think really helped kind of knit the book together. There's really multiple threads chapter by chapter, visually as well as, of course, in the content. So together, we were able to capture this kind of prism, the many, many different facets of, of someone like Dyson that I think no one of us, I think, could have quite captured together. Hmm. I think, yeah, all of that really comes through in the book. It's really an amazing uh, uh, portrait of a very multifaceted person. It's an interesting character study. Um, it's a good window into what physics was like, what the 20th century was like, mm -hmm. what, it, what, what, because you can almost see the experience of coming to know each of these different areas of society and of science through Dyson's mm -hmm. lens, right? What, what would it be like to be in the Royal Air Force and then to move to the United States and then to experience Princeton and then to come work for NASA or DARPA or um, do this biology work or, or you know, be, be a part of so many institutions, work on... And to it, I felt my own imagination kind of expanding. What is even the set of questions you can ask about the exploration of outer space or about the origin of life um, or anything like that? Um, and it's also, I certainly felt, um, and I feel this constantly whenever I read about the history of science, science is no science is the people who do science um, and science mm -hmm. appears to be you know uh, maybe especially in Dyson's work this this this, this calculating this, this this physics this this kind of abstract thing but you come to see that the relationship between the, the person doing the abstractions and the the the, 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 the physics the science is deeply uh, interlinked there's a whole section about debates between Oppenheimer and Dyson and it's yes. even these top physics minds it, you never come to a, a book like this really brings out just what science actually in fact is um and it's not what it, uh, you know, is, is, is often explained to us to be. But I think it's even better <laughs> um, because it's even more fascinating and, 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 and more human. Well, I agree. And uh, obviously, on every single thing you said, I think it's a great way to put it. And, and I, it, it's, it's the people, it's the institutions, it's the broader cultures, it's, the, it's, the, it's a kind of, you know, it's a, a very human um, process with the foibles, with the blind spots, but also uh, every now and then with the great triumphs uh, and breakthroughs as well. 
and with someone like Freeman Dyson, it's an as you say, it's an opportunity to explore kind of broader themes in really nearly a century of effort uh, in 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 many parts of the world, and and so it was a great privilege to kind of sit with that body of work and and learn from my colleagues who, who contributed the the, uh, the other chapters, and and just you know this is, I think I wrote in the introduction, he was really a, a Dyson was a once in a generation thinker. This was an unusual person, an unusual set of ideas to get to try to to sit with and, and imagine with, and and for that it was really just a great privilege to put it together. All right. Well, it's been a great privilege to speak with you about it. The book is Well Doc. You're in Freeman Dyson's Journey Through the Universe. Thank you, David Kaiser. Thanks so much. I appreciate it.